Hi, Sarah here. I'm one of the co-hosts of Female Founders Weekly, and this episode is sponsored by my company, Hostel Pass. Hostel Pass is a digital discount card for the best of European travel, especially the best hostels. I started this company after my own travels, where I was on a really tight budget, which meant I ended up in some pretty horrible accommodation situations. That's why I spent the next six years finding and partnering with the best hostels all across Europe, the kinds of places that travelers and their parents would feel good about. We've now got hundreds of hostels on our platform and we've managed to secure exclusive discounts and bonuses like free welcome drink, late checkout, or free breakfast at every single hostel. We don't just have hostels on Hostel Pass. You can also find discounts on museums, walking tours, river cruises, food tours, e-sims, and so much more. If you're looking to join the thousands of travelers using Hostel Pass to save big on their trip, use code FFW at checkout to take 20% off your first year of membership. Check us out at hostelpass.co. That's H-O-S-T-E-L-P-A-S-S dot C-O. And code FFW for 20% off at checkout. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the very first episode of Female Founders Weekly, the podcast where we speak to everyone you wish you could talk to when you're starting a business. This is part one in our 10-part series, and in today's episode, we interview Gabriella Hersham, the founder and CEO of Huckletree. Huckletree is a rapidly growing co-working space that currently has over 3,000 members, seven different locations across London, Manchester, and Dublin, and supports over 300 companies. In this episode, we talk to Gabriella about everything from her guerrilla marketing tactics in Starbucks to get her first 100 members to becoming a mother while running a full-time business. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. My life before Huckletree was probably much less busy, primarily because of Huckletree, but also because I've had children since. So everything compounded just means that um, life is, is quite hectic these days. I went to the European Business School in Regent's Park. I did a, a um, bachelor's degree in international business with French and Spanish. I graduated with a first uh, class honors degree and I moved to New York to study um, acting and film financing. And I was living in New York for five years, working both in front and behind camera. And in the very early days of the co-working concept, came across a couple of co-working spaces that we actually ended up working out of with the production company that I was working with. I loved the concept, became very passionate about the idea that, you know, people were more and more kind of turning to entrepreneurship as a career and launching their own businesses. But instead of working in isolation, you could create environments where you would bring really exciting people, entrepreneurs and businesses together. And I loved it and moved back home and thought, this is exactly what I want to do in London. There's a gap for this in London. I want to bring it over here. So life pre-Huckletree was, um, yeah it all over the place really but I guess it <laughs> led me to where I am. Acting and film financing that's so interesting so you were doing your co-working and then you thought there was a big gap in London was that kind of your aha moment did you just think I'm just going to take the leap now like what made you actually switch careers at that point? So I that's a really good question I didn't uh, actually there was a moment where I switched careers and for a while I thought you know what I can be the founder of a business that's venture-backed and raise raise the money and go out and start the business and be quite ambitious with it but also you know continue to do my film stuff on the side and 
these were the very early days also uh, in my relationship with my husband, who was at the time saying to me, you'll see, because he's um, he is in venture capital himself. He said, you'll see, you won't be able to do both. When you're running a business, you're going to be super full time. And you just naturally, your kind of acting career will start to diminish as Huckletree takes off. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. So there wasn't a, a moment. In terms of um, bringing it to London, so there were already a couple of uh, workspace providers in the UK market and in London, but I felt that it what was lacking was a workspace that would really kind of become the home for the innovation sector that would help them achieve their business goals, propel growth in the sector, that would also take a stand for topics that affect the sector like the lack of diversity and I felt that that's really where I wanted Huckletree to play and at the same time I was seeing like lots of you know more and more people after university turning to entrepreneurship people starting their own businesses I think impacted by the recession in 2007-2008 like people were being laid off and doing their own things so I felt that there was an opportunity to create a different version of what was already in the market. Absolutely and I as a Huckletree member I know that the spaces you've created are exactly what you set out to do. They're amazing and also they're very vast and exciting spaces. I imagine that required funding from the start. That's not really something you can just like bootstrap. Could you tell us a little bit about your funding journey? Yes sure you're right I did need funding from the start although our very uh, third space was was very small and I'm sure that there are some people who could kind of figure out uh, put the capital in themselves or figure it out that wasn't my situation so I did go and uh, raise money in the beginning it was again it was only a small space in Carcomel it was about 2,000 square feet so for context the kind of spaces that we're signing today are anywhere between 30 and 80,000 square feet so it was absolutely tiny in comparison but felt like a massive leap of faith and risk that I was taking at the time. Um, And in order to sign the lease on that space, obviously I needed to have the money to be able to fit out and run the space for a year because I assumed I'd have no revenue in the first 12 months just to be prudent. And so I went and did an angel investment round, which was challenging primarily because I was a first-time founder and I didn't know what I needed to get in place in order to give investors the conviction that I was backable and that my business idea was solid and that I would know what I was doing. Uh, but also challenging because, and this was about 10 years ago now, 10 years ago, the, the landscape was very different for female founders, specifically female founders who didn't have an operational co-founder as I didn't have at the time, and also female founders who didn't have a track record in anything to do with the business that they were growing. So it was a, it was challenging. And I think, you know, it was okay. In the end, you know, we raised the money. It wasn't the length of time that it took. The issue that I encountered was more the kind of conversations that I had and the nuances in those conversations that made me feel quite like I was being patronized. Yeah. Um, But once we raised the money, you know, I kind of got on my way. And I think over the last 10 years, what I've really learned is uh, just to not tolerate stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, if I'm in a situation where I feel like, I'm being patronized or I'm being asked questions that, you know, male, my male counterparts wouldn't be or that I'm being spoken to in a way that is patronizing. You know, I very quickly set the record straight. So it's great because it's given me an opportunity to grow and develop in that sense in my own regard. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's great that, I mean, initiatives like yours as well have made the funding landscape better for women in general um, and lots of initiatives around the world as well. But I wonder how much did you have to raise and knowing what you know now being deep into this business, would you have spent that initial funding in a different way? Let me just think back because it was a decade ago. Um, but I think we raised, it was a small round and it was way before the days of like everybody raising like two million kind of seed rounds. I think we raised like 300,000 pounds, which again, at the time felt like, and it is a lot of money, but I mean, at the time it really felt like a lot of money to be raising. You know, now you go, you go through like several fundraising rounds and, you know, everything is kind of more put into context, but, um, we raised 300 grand and how I spent that capital was pretty much from memory an even split between property related costs. So the legal fees, um, the stamp duty, the capex relating to doing up the space to kind of operational costs. So again, I was taking out, um, again, I can't remember exactly, but, but around a year, give or takes worth of capital outlay so that if I didn't do any sales, the business could survive on a year with no revenue. Um, and I don't think, well, we do do it differently now. We definitely took, don't take a year's worth of, of, of running costs out. And we definitely know much better how to pre-sell our spaces. So, for example, mm-hmm. open a new space in Manchester that we've pre-sold 100% and the doors open to our hub on Oxford Circus. Uh, next week and we have pre-sold to about 60% as well over there so you know and these are much bigger spaces than I was playing at in the beginning so now you know we we don't feel the need to take that much of a buffer but definitely I think that was the right decision for the knowledge that I had at the time like I didn't know how to do the pre-sales I didn't know what I was going to be doing or how I'd be getting people in I didn't know how the product would land I didn't know if the pricing was right I didn't have a marketing team I didn't have a sales team so I think that was the right choice to make at the time um, and unfortunately, my industry isn't one where, again, to your point earlier, Sarah, isn't one where most people can go and get their first phase of operational and get the revenue up and proof of proof of concept and then go out and raise kind of large scale funding. Like, you know, most people will need to have funding in the first instance. So I played it safe and I'm glad that I, that I did. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your new locations Um, and thank you for kind of your honesty around that and like admitting that you didn't know a load of stuff like we have no idea what we're doing half the time um, and you just learn as you go. So really appreciate that kind of honesty. So you said you were really cautious in the beginning and basically planned for no revenue for a whole year. I'm assuming you did get some. Um, How did you get those first hundred members? Yes, yeah, so we did, obviously, and it was uh, it was done in quite a scrappy way. So again, you know, a, f- a few things that I would point out here, we didn't have any marketing knowledge or infrastructure in the team at all. It was pretty much just myself and I had a non-operational co-founder who worked in finance who had helped me raise the, raise the initial capital. And then also because our business is linked to physical premises and we have, uh, you know, a number of spots to fill and they have to be kind of geographically um, relevant you know the the marketing especially for a very small building is quite limited but also that makes it quite simple so what we did was we hung outside Farrington tube station we gave out flyers went into local coffee shops we gave out flyers we said don't work from Starbucks when you can get an office come <laughs> work from an office we did um, we outreached local businesses on email 
we did kind of activation and drinks events outside the front doors of our first space, all very guerrilla, to be honest. And uh, probably if we did so today, we'd have like a plethora of issues. But I think at the time we were much more <laughs> open to being quite um, undercover, covert guerrilla in our marketing style. And we also got a lot of press at the time, which which definitely helped. But I think that, again, it was a small space. We could fit 40 people. There was churn over the coming months. So that 40 rose to, you know, 100, 150 over the first few years. But uh, at the beginning, it was just very trying what worked, seeing what worked, but very kind of grassroots and and um, localized marketing efforts. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned churn, you've mentioned marketing, obviously property costs, uh, running the property, I imagine, like staffing, those sorts of things. You know, you have some unique challenges um, to having a business model, which is very reliant on a staffed physical space. What what would you say is your kind of number one challenge? What's that thing that if could always go smoothly, you would wish it would? Well, I think, you know, I classify what we do as hospitality. And I think that um, in hospitality, you know, you are dealing with uh, large, large teams. And with that, there's the beauty and the joy of working with great people and, you know, seeing everybody kind of come together. Uh, you know, I love that. That's really part of the reason why I was so passionate about Huckletree in the beginning was bringing people together and being around people. So I love working with my teams, but there is also a challenge there. Um, and anyone who runs a business or works in hospitality will tell you the same thing. It is challenging to, to find and retain great team members. Would I say that is the single biggest challenge of, of Huckletree or Huckletree's PL? Probably not. I would say, you know, relating to the PL. The biggest challenge really is making sure that the things that people don't see or don't really appreciate when they're running perfectly just run perfectly all the time. So, for example, you want perfect Wi-Fi, you want good phone signal, you know, we want the air conditioning to always work, the heating, perfect acoustics in all of the rooms. The list goes on and on and on. You would never kind of, you know, write Huckletree a note saying thank you so much for making sure the office is like the perfect temperature or... <laughs> Huckletree, I love you so much. I can never find you in the room next to me. Like that wouldn't happen. But when it doesn't work, everybody notices. So I would say that's a real um, ongoing, um, not a frustration because it's not, you know, that hard to figure out. But I would say it's unique to what we do is just making sure that the spaces work. Yeah, you're so right. So it's kind of logistics and ops in that sense of like running those actual, actual spaces. Um, it's funny, isn't it? When you start, you think your big biggest problem is going to be X, but it always ends up being something that you never really considered. So I can imagine uh, there has been a huge amount of learnings as well, which is really interesting to hear about. So that was kind of how you got started, popping into Starbucks and saying, come on, I'll give you a free coffee and huckle tree, come and work there. But tell us a bit about where you're at now. I mean, you've mentioned 10 years ago. Talk to us about where huckle trees at today. We are really excited about what the future holds for our industry. I think we're at a really um, exciting inflection point where businesses want to get back to the offices. Very few businesses are remaining kind of completely remote uh, or dispersed. But also as kind of people that are going back to the office, we expect a really great and exciting workplace experience, more akin to kind of hospitality than offices. 
Um, and on the employer side, they recognize how valuable it is to bring people back, but they don't want to sign up to like 10, 15 year leases. They don't want to forecast where they're going to be in that length of time. They don't want to spend the money on the fit out of the space. So all of this leads my industry to a really exciting moment where there is a ton of demand for the right product. And that's great. So we are now in kind of heavy growth mode. As I mentioned, we we opened our Manchester space. We're opening Oxford Circus next week. Wow. And we're signing, I think, on about three or four other buildings actually this week. Congratulations. So it's really exciting. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy. There's a lot going on. Um but it's exciting and, and you know, I think we've we our industry has really been through a lot. Like I know that lots of businesses and lots of companies went through so much during the pandemic, but arguably like definitely the only thing that like very few people were going to accept to continue to pay for during the pandemic was workspace so we it's been a it was a definitely a tough moment in time and now we're kind of out the end of it and actually the industry is in a position of benefit as a result so I'm really looking forward to this next period and to uh, driving the growth for us. Brilliant so when you move from your your small Clerkenwell office like when you opened your your first big space was that the moment you feel like I've made it no I still don't feel like I've made it I don't <laughs> feel like you've made it do you know what I mean it's like at what point do you feel like I've made it and even when you feel that way what comes next like I often think about what would I you know what would I do if one day I wasn't doing Huckletree anymore would I want to just like be with my children would I want to start another business? There's like pros and cons to everything, but I just, I don't feel like I personally would ever be at a point where I'm like, cool, I've made it. I can just chill. I don't think that's, that's how I see things. But um, look, I was definitely very, very happy when we opened our second space because it was much larger than the first. But then, you know, there've been so many other milestones and like different trajectory, different like levels that we've hit since then. I don't, I don't know what constitutes making it. I think to one extent we've we've made it because we have a brand name that's recognized, especially in London and, and also Manchester and Dublin, but to lesser extent, just by virtue of the footprint that we have here compared to there. To, to another extent, I think we've made it because I know that, you know, our members like our product. Doesn't mean to say we get everything right. Like sometimes the Wi-Fi does go down. Sometimes the coffee is shit, whatever. <laughs> but all in all we have a good product that you know people mm. pay for and people like and they like being there like my whole mission in this is make people happy to come to work every day so that yeah. makes me happy if I feel like we're achieving that I want to ask you about what the future of Huckletree looks like in the next five years but also I think um, kind of spun from that question is do you think that it's a constant struggle as a founder as part of our role is to constantly look to the future and try and grow and build better that it then becomes hard to realize and celebrate those milestones along the way yeah I think it's a really good it's a really good um, question and actually it's something that you very consciously have to put effort into because it's so easy to be so rushed and not celebrate achievements but also not tear down when things went wrong and I think actually you know they're both as important as each other but if you don't put the mechanisms in place to make sure that you're doing it it's really easy just to kind of forget about it so we and there's no kind of obvious way of doing it but one thing that we have found was is tying it back to our values so for example one of our values is around instant karma celebrating our team celebrating our successes and we're always shouting out to each other just on slack about 
you know, when someone's really driven a project forward or a great moment that's happened, or it could just be like a great event that someone has decided to throw in one of our hubs. It doesn't have to be like those huge moments, but I think it's important for everybody to feel like, you know, credit is shared across the team, that credit's given where it's due and that we're stopping and celebrating. I think that's really important. Yeah. It's almost like those moments you're so happy to give to others you maybe don't give to ourselves enough and sometimes milestones can take so long that but by the time you're there you like don't feel like celebrating but I write mine down I'm like when I reach x even if it's in five months I'll know that five months ago I would have been really happy to see that come to fruition so it's kind of force yourself to celebrate it yeah but you're right I never celebrate anything for myself when I celebrate something (laughs) if it's thinking like next week we're doing the uh, celebration drinks for the launch of the new location um with the team and with our design and build teams and you know it's definitely not for me like I don't really have time to take you know from 3 p.m out of my diary on a Thursday or Friday afternoon to go and do it but I recognize just how important it is for everybody involved in that um yeah happy to have a drink with them of course but it's like <laughs> I put it on myself but yeah it is it is really important otherwise you just get sucked into this whirlwind whirlwind of building a business and and whilst that might be what we want to do as the founders like other people don't yeah same way absolutely so on the absolute flip side of all of that what is the big vision if we're not thinking about today if we're thinking about Huckletree in five ten years it's always been create the most inclusive exciting dynamic innovation ecosystem in the UK and Ireland and really become known as the home that powers the innovation sector. But I think what we've realized over the past few years is that there's a massive, massively bigger play towards hospitality now that needs to be delivered post-COVID, you know, different expectations. And so we can't deliver on this, you know, create the most exciting innovation ecosystem if they aren't underpinned with spaces that just really work seamlessly and like perfectly delivered hospitality. I think it's the right growth in the right parts, the right locations, the right cities, creating and curating the right ecosystems, bringing the right people together. In Oxford Circus, we're really pioneering what the future workspace should look like and really thinking differently about workspace design and experience. Plus also, we built it specifically for the Web3 community. So a lot of investors creators entrepreneurs within the web3 space and the space looks like it belongs to the web3 mm-hmm. community it looks like a physical metaverse that is so That's much awesome more, yeah, it's really really cool but that's so much more powerful than like oh how could you have taken an office floor in an old building that is you know neither here nor there and not really serving any particular community that's not at all yeah. how i see us so i see us being very intentional and specific about the buildings the design choices, the ecosystems we're curating, the way we're impacting local communities, etc. We're also B Corp pending. That will definitely kind of help give direction to the course that we take. Congratulations. I think that definitely as well sets you apart from your competitors. When I was looking for a workspace, I settled on yours because of the focus on startup ecosystem and just that it felt like there was going to be an amazing community there. And there really was As you were getting started on your journey, I imagine you had a lot of ideas about what being a founder would look like. And I think as we all learn with our own businesses, actually being a founder is not necessarily what you expected. What was the most unexpected part of being a founder, the reality versus expectation? 
It's a it's a very good question. I'm I'm not sure if I had any expectations because I I started so much with this theme of bringing people together. It wasn't about being an entrepreneur. It was about I had found this concept and I liked this idea and I wanted to build this idea that I didn't really go in with massive expectations of what entrepreneurship would look like. Um, and as part of that, I kind of took the highs and the lows. Like in the first few years, I paid myself 15 grand for like the first three years mm -hmm. a year, um, which was like entirely not the right thing to do on so many levels. And I should have asked for more and demanded more. Um, and it was really challenging to make that work, <laughs> as you can imagine. But I think I just didn't expect, I, like, I didn't have delusions of grandeur about it. I didn't expect it to be more than mm -hmm. it was. I always say I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, I didn't know what would come or, like, all the obstacles that would come. And I guess if you know about them, you'll never start a business. So I guess <laughs> I'm quite glad that I didn't. I didn't know. Now, having said that, I always say, well, would I actually start another business? Because I know all of the shit that comes your way that you have to deal with. But um, but at the time, I think I just didn't, I didn't think too far forward. I just kind of jumped into it and was excited to to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. That like naive sort of ignorance is bliss of first time founders is really a helpful tool. <laughs> it can get us really far, I think. And then it's like once we're in it, we're like, it well, we're in it now. So we have to figure this out. I, was say, I read somewhere that it's about being passionate about the mission of the company, but not about the product. Because in moments where you need to pivot, if you're passionate about the mission, you'll find a way to make the mission happen. Like my mission is to create exciting ecosystems to bring people together, to make them inclusive, et cetera, to make people happy to come to work. But I'm not, you know, if, again, during the pandemic, we had to pivot. It's not about the product itself. It's about what you're trying to achieve. And I think that's an important distinction. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that. So you became a mother through your founder journey. How did your experience of being a founder change and how did you adapt when you had kids? I just remember feeling that I just needed to become much more effective when I had the children. I would kind of arrive a bit later. I would uh, have to leave a bit earlier and I didn't have the time for like bullshit and mucking around. But you know what that also did? It really made me recognize how like hiring people who were, you know, parents or had other dependencies, I think it just gave me a lot more respect for what we can all achieve. So that opened my mindset quite quite drastically but that's the main thing but I, I also just generally think that there isn't really ever a good time to like have children you know like we always either feel like we don't have enough time we don't have enough money we don't have enough enough you know infrastructure or you know family around or whatever but yeah I totally feel that and I've always felt that but just go for it and you never know how long it's going to take hopefully it's an easy journey for you but you'll always figure it out when the baby arrives Great. And finally, before we go into a little quick fire round, um, what is the best piece of advice you could give to someone who's just now starting their own business? It's really, really hard. I think, you know, there's lots of advice that I would give. The one thing that I found very helpful, and I still do, is I surrounded myself with people that believed in me. So I think go and get yourself a peer group of other entrepreneurs. No excuse for not making it happen. You might not have the network around you, but there are so many that exist that you can tap into. Um come to Hufflepuff, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and um and yeah. That's the yeah, way. Yeah, no, I absolutely relate to that. I mean, it's how Sarah and I met. 
Uh, it's why we're starting this podcast. Uh, it's one of those things that you don't think is as powerful as it is, which is just talking to others about similar problems and brainstorming. So I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, we are going to move on to a little quick fire. Um, one sentence, one word answers, just a little bit more insight into you and kind of a little bit of myth busting about founders. So the first one's nice and easy. And you've already mentioned the school drop off. So what is your morning routine? Okay, so, but in one word. One, <laughs> yeah, uh, as quick as you can, morning. a sentence or a bit okay. more. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to speak really fast and hope for the best. So I really <laughs> wake up earlier and give myself space. I don't get as stressed throughout the day as I would have done if I start my, my morning on, on the back foot. So I wake up a bit earlier. I have a kind of self-care wellness routine that I really like to uh, do every day. I try to avoid any kind of stress with the children as well because the the drop off pre leaving the house can be very stressful getting everyone ready and screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. And then if that happens, we get into the car and we listen to meditation music and then we all calm down. But if it doesn't happen, then it's good. And then I just feel like <laughs> I can handle today. <laughs> yes, I love it. Start as we mean to go on. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, how would you rate your work life balance out of 10? I think it's pretty good. I work a lot around the clock but equally if I need to be at school for you know meeting with a teacher or like last week I spoke at my son's school for entrepreneurs week and I was there from nine till ten in the morning or whatever it might be my team like we all understand so many of us have children we give each other that leeway and I think that we make it work but we're ambitious and we work like animals it just we don't feel like it has to be a nine to six situation it's not that rigid Love it. Um, what is one myth about being a founder? That it's fun. So I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it is fun sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Okay, how much coffee are we drinking per day? A lot. <laughs> it's my yeah. it's my one bite. So I allow it. And when my heart starts palpitating, I know I need to switch to decaf. <laughs> so a lot of coffee. Yeah. And what is your biggest procrastination vice? Instagram. Mm, that's a killer. Mine's yeah. TikTok. Yeah. What do you do to mitigate stress? Rituals, self-care, self-love, um, workouts, and also not feeling guilty because as a parent, it's so easy to wake up and be like, shit, the kids are awake. I feel so guilty if I'm not running over to them and spending every waking minute with them. I just don't want to leave like I don't want that existence anymore I just want to be like they're yeah. cool they're happy they see me <laughs> I don't need to run upstairs to see them right now this is my time for myself so those kind of things yeah for sure well we very much appreciate your candor it's always super useful to just hear the realities of everything but we always like to end on one positive question which is what is your favorite thing about running Huckle Tree? the people definitely the people Thank you so much. This has been such an exciting conversation, especially for me. I mean, I've really loved being part of that space. It's great to actually meet you and connect with you. Thanks for all of that insight. That was brilliant. Yeah, we really appreciate like opening up and talking about the good, the bad and the ugly. So um, yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, nice to meet you both. And thank you so much for having me.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Female Founders Weekly with Gabriella Hersham of Huckle Tree. Join us next week. We'll be interviewing Joanna Griver, a venture capitalist, who is going to tell us everything VCs want to know when you're fundraising. Female Founders Weekly was created by myself, Sarah Weingust, the founder of Hostel Pass, and Alex Pletherow, founder of Freedom Underwear. You can find us on Instagram at Female Founders Weekly, on TikTok at Female Founders Weekly, and with any questions, you can email us at femalefoundersweekly at gmail.com. Thanks for joining. Bye.